Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a very important conversation for you today. Uh, our guest is Yarlis Mendez Zamora, and she is currently uh, serving as the federal campaign lead at the Florida Immigrant Coalition and is earning her master's degree at the University of Miami in community and social change. Born and raised in Miami, she grew up listening to her Nicaraguan family's immigration stories and constantly draws inspiration from them. At the University of Florida, where she earned her bachelor's in English and history and minored in Latin American studies, she was a coordinator of the Latina Diaspora in the Americas program, a student government senator, interned at the Broward Public Defender's Office, was an ambassador at La Casita, a contributor for the Huffington Post Latino Voices, and is one-sixth of the online Latina Rebels Collective. Yarodi is welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me here. And it's such a pleasure to um, be here with y'all today. And I know that it's been a back and forth for a while, so I'm excited to finally be on the show. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you here. In your bio, you have a quote from Gloria Anzaldúa, wild tongues cannot be tamed, only cut out. Why is that quote so important to you? So I, when I was in college, it was the first time I was exposed to a lot of Latino writers, writers that shared my background, my culture. And so when I read that quote from Gloria Saldua, it just really spoke to a lot of my own experiences and a lot of the way that I navigated the world. There wasn't a way for me to be quiet. There wasn't a way for me to be tamed. I would speak my mind in my classes. And that's actually also where I did a lot of my organizing. Mm-hmm. I started on my college campus. And I remember that administration would try to shut us down. I remember that there were some professors who said that we were too radical. And all we wanted was just a better condition for students. But that's why that quote meant a lot to me, because I realized there are other people who have these experiences, who have this mentality, and who aren't giving up. Mm-hmm. You are currently with the Florida Immigrant Coalition. Tell us about the organization and its mission. Definitely. So the Florida Immigrant Coalition is, right as it says in the name, a coalition of over 50 member organizations, including unions, youth groups, um, different faith groups. And so our aim is to create a true Florida where everyone is welcomed, where everyone can have a home, where everyone feels heard and validated. Right now, it's not happening, but, you know, just like that Gloria Anseldua quote, we're not giving up. And your work specifically as federal campaign lead, what do you do at the coalition? So I do a couple of different things. I analyze what is happening on the federal front. And I also bring that information back to our membership so that we can make decisions on how it is that we're going to move forward. So, for example, on the legislative side, we know that there are different options for legalization for undocumented individuals, right? We know that there is the registry, which would basically be a pathway for folks who who have been here for multiple years. And it's also something that President Reagan used back in the 80s to help legalize folks. That's actually how my dad was able to get some papers. And so it would just be something that renews every seven years. So that instead of a one-shot legislation, we have something that is concrete 
It happens every seven years. And then from the administrative side, when we're looking at administrative relief, we've been pushing something called temporary protective status, TPS, for Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And so this would help over 300,000 individuals have access to a work permit, driver's license, and just live their lives without fear. And so let's talk a little bit about Florida Senate Bill 718, which took effect in July. What, what have you seen in the past couple of months since that bill took effect? We've seen a lot of fear in our community. Um, I have a chat with over 600 Nicaraguans who are desperate to find some type of immigration status. They're applying for asylum, but only three in 10 asylum applications are actually um, approved. So these folks are waiting in uh, a type of hellish limbo. And so there was somebody who needed to go to the hospital. Her niece needed to go to the hospital. And she was terrified of going. She did not want to go um, because she said, if I go there, it's important. Mm -hmm. And even though her niece was in awful, awful pain, it took some convincing of, well, let's see what we can do. Can we go to a community clinic? Can we go here? Can we go there? So we know that folks are scared to seek medical care when they're at their most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We all know that um, for businesses, because there is the mandatory e-verify, right? Um, for businesses who have 25 employees or more, business owners, especially in the agricultural sector, are And it's something that Representative Roth himself said, right, this Republican legislator who voted for this bill. And he said, I know that the agricultural businesses are mad at us. Um, but maybe also for your listeners who don't know what SB 1718 is, mm -hmm. it was this massive air, this massive bill that passed in Florida that affects every aspect of our lives. It's not something that just targets people who don't have an immigration status. It's also something that targets their loved ones. It's something that targets their employers, their, uh, their, their leaders of faith. Mm -hmm. And so the example that I always give is, I have family in North Carolina. If I wanted to go visit family in North Carolina with some of my cousins who don't have papers, I would be facing a third degree felony when we're driving back into the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. One of the really controversial parts of this bill is that it creates second or third degree felonies for driving people into the state of Florida who are undocumented. Mm -hmm. It makes it mandatory for hospitals to ask um, about your immigration status, which is why that woman didn't want to go to the hospital with her niece. Mm -hmm. It's mandatory for uh, businesses who have over 25 employees to use E-Verify, which is why the agriculture sector is mad. We know that this is a sector that really uses undocumented labor. And so, again, this is a massive bill. It targets community IDs, which was a way that we were, we were passing identification for folks who don't have an immigration status. It wasn't a work permit. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a little piece of identification that said, this is who I am. This is where I live. Let me pick up kids from school. Let me open up a bank account. The most basic things. Mm -hmm. Do you see this as a direct result of Governor Ron DeSantis and his push towards 
like a fascist type of environment, a fascist state, part of just, you know, otherism, wokeism, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems to be so rooted and grounded in his own persona and his agenda. It just seems like it's a solution in search of a problem and a very bad one and a very discriminatory one at, at that as well. Absolutely. This is nothing more than just political points for our governor. Um, we know that instead of focusing on the fact that Florida is an inflation hotspot and trying to figure that out, instead of trying to figure out how to actually invest in our educational system, instead of trying to figure out how to actually uh, move forward, right, with hurricane preparedness, he's doing ridiculous laws that nobody has asked for. Well, because it's throwing red meat to the base. And he's running for president and he's trying to get Trump's base. But you're right. It's just a diversion away from the real problems that Florida faces and other Republican states face. What do you think about along these lines? I don't know if you've been following what's been going on up in New York with Mayor Eric Adams and the comments he's been making. This week, he said that New York City was, quote, being destroyed by the influx of asylum-seeking migrants from the southern border, and he didn't have any idea how to fix it. And he said, the New York City that we know now is is not going to be anymore. I mean, that's some pretty hefty rhetoric. Dangerous rhetoric. It is, it is really dangerous rhetoric. And I think also that um, one of the key things that the mayor has done is ask President Biden for specific things, and President Biden hasn't done them, mm-hmm. nor he considered them. And I know because one of the things that Mayor Adams has been asking for is TPS for certain countries, right? And so with the TPS, like I mentioned, folks would have access to a driver's license, a work permit, Mm -hmm. a social security number. President Biden isn't doing that. And in fact, we know that there are many in his administration who have said that they don't want to do anything immigration related until a second Biden presidency because they want to keep our rules hostage in a way, right? And so it's it's disheartening to hear that, but I also know it's coming from a desperate place where there has been no response from the administration. Mm-hmm. Well, I understand the concern as a New Yorker and as an American, because it's not just happening in New York, but you know, there's been over 100,000 migrants have been part of a campaign by people like Governor Greg Abbott in Texas. So it's human beings being used as political wedges, but The reality is there's been an influx of over 100,000 people, 60,000 of which are being sheltered in the city, um, 2,100 are bused to hotels in seven counties north of the city. And this is going to cost about $12 billion over three years. You know, it's a a federal problem, but it's being made into a local problem. And the local governments just don't have the resources to handle this problem. So it is a real problem, but I think my question was more specific to the mayor's rhetoric because we see that over the last eight years, we see that kind of rhetoric coming from Trump and the Republicans. We see, as we've talked about, not just rhetoric, but actual policy down in Florida, which is incredibly inhumane and discriminatory. So to see the mayor of the biggest city, most important city in this country come out with that kind of inflammatory rhetoric it's almost like throwing a match into a very dry forest. And it just seems very yeah. irresponsible. 
it's it's disheartening. I think more than disheartening, heartbreaking, right? Um, I know that New York has often been seen as a bastion for immigrants, right? I know that it's been seen as a, as a as such an important and crucial part of also the immigrant identity in in the U.S. And so for Mayor Adams to say that it was heartbreaking, but again, I know it comes from a place of utter desperation because you're right; it is a lot of money, and y'all are the victims of governors like Abbott and DeSantis wanting to put even more pressure mm-hmm. um, on the idea of sanctuary city. Well, that's why they're doing it. I mean, you said it before that the Biden administration wants to ignore the immigration policy until after the election. You know, when people like DeSantis and Abbott do what they do, that's what they have in mind. They're looking to control policy by these actions. But you said something really interesting. We have the Statue of Liberty at the base of the Statue of Liberty. It says, give us your tired, you're hungry, you're weak, you're poor, yearning to be free, et cetera, et cetera. We built Ellis Island as a transfer, an intake station for immigrants decades ago. This is America. This is the land of opportunity. This is where people do come to escape persecution, where they do come to, to seek asylum. But it just seems like in the last several decades, we can't seem to get our act together with immigration reform. Why? I mean, the last time the United States enacted major immigration reform was in 1986. Is the political environment so toxic and so partisan that we just can't sit down and bang out an immigration reform bill that is humane, that is fair, and that addresses the issues that need to be addressed. I think that it is because the environment is so toxic, you know, about, when was it? About 10 years ago with the King of Eight, there was almost a way forward. Mm-hmm. Right. There was almost a way forward back in um, 2020, 2021, when President Biden was elected. And I went up to D.C. I was a part of those marches. I was a part of asking the parliamentarian to include immigration reform in certain pieces of legislation. Right. And it didn't end up happening. It's because we it's 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 so toxic and you see as the polarization continues to happen that there's one side that does not want to negotiate at all right now um republicans are saying that they will not and and the most right-wing republicans right the freedom caucus is saying that they will not give any money they will not pass any bills to help fund the u.s they will let everything go to a standstill unless mm-hmm. hr2 one of the most devastating anti-immigrant bills that was passed in the House, but wasn't taken up in the Senate, is included. And so it's not, it's not a, uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like the greatest answer of like, it's a polarization. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that, that is what we're seeing. Do you think, it's, has it gotten worse in the Trump years? Or was it always like absolutely. this? Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like, it got worse during the Trump years. And um, I work with somebody when it comes to TPS Nicaragua. Um, she's an amazing leader. She works with American Friends Service Committee. She volunteers with them. And um, her daughter, she's undocumented. And her daughter begged her in 2016 to, to please stop. 
because her daughter was terrified that her mother was going to be deported. Mm -hmm. And so we have also many, many, many immigrant rights activists who are directly impacted, who stepped back because they were terrified. And so, again, we just see that the ugliest parts of American society is was brought out from the Trump administration and is now fully open mm-hmm. and out the street. And, you know, it's not just immigrants and, and migrants. It's affected Jews. It's affected Muslims. It's affected LGBTQ community. The rhetoric, the scapegoating that has taken place in the last eight or nine years, the hatred, the violence, the incitement of violence. I agree. All of that existed before, but Trump gave license to that in a way that we've never seen before, where all the quiet parts are now said out loud, where Nazis are marching in the streets with reckless abandon. It just seems like, I don't know how we get back to just a regular shitty place. Exactly. It's, It's not anymore dog whistle policy, dog whistle language. It is in the open. And so, um, and I think it's I also, also like we were saying before about fascism. Part of fascism, as we know from history, is the scapegoating of others, is the blaming of others for your failures, your inadequacies, your unhappiness, whatever. And so I think it's stemming from that same fascist-like dream that a lot of these people seem to have in the Republican Party. And discrimination against migrants is just par- part of that. Yeah, it is definitely part and parcel. I mean, we've seen this happen in other places, right? Where anything that is the other is scapegoated and persecuted. But I think that even a lot of immigrants themselves don't think that this is possible in the U.S. because they've been fed this idea that the U.S. is the land of opportunity, prosperity. Everybody's going to you know, help you out, et cetera. And then the reality is very, very different. Um, I think I'm really grateful to the fact that during a Trump's administration, I was able to study a little bit of human identity. And so we are, one of the reasons why we're so entrenched in who we are and our own identity and why we attack anything that is considered the other is because of fear, is because we don't want anything that we see as ours taken away from mm-hmm. us. And so um, during the Trump administration that was on full on display, it continues to be on full on display, especially during um, our governor's right now administration, right? and. It's also interesting to also see this play out with our state legislators because especially in South Florida, so many of them are from Cuban descent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the policies that the Santos has passed do affect Cuban immigrants, but the dissonance is so strong there that I think this is going to affect everybody else but my family. Well, that's that's really fascinating because... You know, the Hispanic community is not a homogenous community, is not a voting block. But there is like a uh, a self-created hierarchical or something where like these Hispanics look down on these Hispanics or you're not 
working hard like I did and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And one of the things that's also fascinating about self-created hierarchies and immigration is that there are certain immigration laws that affect you depending on what country you're from, right? We know that for a really long time, Cubans had what for trifling. Haitians had none of that. And so we saw the discriminatory policy against the Haitian community, against Haitians who were feeling unlivable conditions, would touch down in the same places that Cubans did and were deported right back. And we're still seeing that today. We know that to this day, um, President Biden keeps sending the deportation flights, even though the U.S. Embassy has sold every single American who is in Haiti to immediately get out. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that happen. And going back to immigration law depends on what country you're from, right? We know that we've been fighting for TPS for Nicaragua for many, many months. Uh, it's been probably two years now. And Ukraine got TPS within six days. Right. Well, I mean, back in the day, Donald Trump, he said the quiet part out loud when he was saying we need more European immigration, you know, blonde, white Europe. Like he said, how come we don't have more immigra- immigrants coming from those countries, the Nordic countries? So, yeah, I, I think you're you're 100 percent right. But I want to ask you about this other thing, phenomenon, which stems from what we're talking about, which which is the right wing shift among Hispanics. Democrats saw an 18% drop from 2016, first and foremost from Cubans, then Puerto Ricans, then Dominicans, then Mexicans. Males, Hispanic males, left the Democratic Party. Uh, That was the biggest shift. Recently, it's bottomed, but the party has not been able to recapture that lost Hispanic vote. And so the question becomes, why are Hispanics shifting to the GOP when, again, it's a party that does nothing for them except discriminate against them. Is there some economic reason? Is it that wokeism is somehow penetrating this conversation in the Hispanic community? What is causing this shift to the Republican Party, in particular Hispanic males? Is it just simple as they see Trump as like machismo and that's like a thing? I, I don't know. I can't explain it. Help me understand it. Yeah. So I actually, my family, I come from a very large family. And so in my family, you will have the entire political ideology spectrum. And so I had very strong conversations with my brothers because my aunt, my aunt, I'm never going to like really talk to her about why she supports Trump, even though once upon a time, she was an undocumented immigrant sleeping in the streets of Miami and had nothing, right? I know that her reasoning is that Ronald Reagan can pay papers. And so I need to be a Republican for the rest of my life because this person who came from a specific party gave me the papers that allowed me to now have the ability to buy a home, the ability to have a car, the ability to drive, et cetera. So for the past 40 years, my aunt, my, my aunt has been a Republican. There's no talking to her. My brothers are a little bit different. And so I was speaking with my oldest brothers and I asked them, why are you supporting Donald Trump. And what they gave me was an answer centered around the economy and centered around the idea of a strong 
president um, of a strong armed president. And so I, I think that what we're seeing, why, uh, you know, uh, particularly Hispanic men are leaving the Democratic Party is because they're seeing somebody who is going to, as you said, uh, validify their machismo. I think that they're seeing somebody who's focused on the economy, even though no matter how much I talk about what Biden is doing to the economy, their answer is, I don't feel it. And I tell them, you don't feel it because we have the Santos' policies in Florida too. Right. But it doesn't, it doesn't click. And they're also, the wokeism is also, unfortunately, you're right. Um, even though we do have siblings and cousins who are part of the LBGTQ community and they're like, not. So um, that's also another thing. And when I was speaking to my brother about who he was going to vote for in the 2024 election, because he voted Biden in 2020. And I asked him, who are you going to vote for in the 2024 elections? He said, if Trump's running, I'll vote Trump. And I asked him, would you vote for Santos? And he said, no. If it's DeSantis versus Joe Biden, I'll vote Joe Biden. If it is Trump versus Biden, I will vote for Trump. And so that broke my heart because I'm somebody who is continuously exposing. And my brother hears all of my conversation. My brother knows what I do. My brother knows why I do. And but why did he make that distinction? What's the difference? Between DeSantis and Trump? Mm -hmm. I think that what he sees with DeSantis and Trump is that um, DeSantis isn't as strong as Trump is. He isn't somebody who also has a personality that's on path. Some of the things that also capture a lot of people to Trump is the co-personality, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, so DeSantis doesn't have that. Right. He's wearing white go-go boots. Exactly. That, 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 that wouldn't... That, right. That's not something I would necessarily get. Mm -hmm. My brother, and, you know, I know that my brother also has the, the lack of DeSantis' response for the hurricanes, especially for Hurricane Ian. And I think that the immigration bill was also something else. Because again, we do have a lot of undocumented cousins. And so I remember when in the original form of the bill, it was going to be that if you were driving anybody into the state or within the state. So if we were just going to go to CVS or go to the grocery store, whatever you have it, um, we would be having second or third baby spending. That made my brother pause. But the other thing is that all of the Republican candidates so far have said that they would take away birthright citizenship. I am a citizen because of birthright citizenship. Mm -hmm. And so I told my brother, you need to also look at that. Hmm. Where where are we at with DACA in this country right now? So we know that DACA is going to die a painful death in the courts because the courts have made it really clear that um, a pathway to citizenship or some type of legalization is something that Congress has the power to do and should pass the Congress. That's something that the courts have been finding over and over again. So now that gives even more fire for Congress to do something. But we're not seeing them move forward with anything just yet. It's just such a shame where we are in this country with immigration and how maybe half the country views immigrants and migrants. You know, I bring a, a, a really interesting perspective 
because this issue has touched my life very personally. Uh, back in 2006, my wife was murdered by an undocumented immigrant from Ecuador. And he was 19 years old at the time. He was a construction worker. And as you remember, back in tw uh, 2015, Donald Trump was using all these angel moms, right? So I got, you know, everyone from Bill O'Reilly to Megyn Kelly, all these right-wingers on TV wanted to use me in that same kind of way. And uh, if you Google my name and, and New York Times op-ed, you'll read what my position, I wrote a, an op-ed for the Times, and I, I just refused to go to that place of scapegoating. You know, like if he wasn't in this country, my wife would still be alive. I mean, people get hit by a bus. We, we don't ban buses, right? It's a stupid argument. And the, the op-ed that I wrote was about that my wife wasn't killed by an illegal alien. She was killed by a murderer who had no regard for human life. But like where we are today with that kind of migrant scapegoating is worse today than it was when I was dealing with it on a personal level. And I just hope that somehow we can get through. I mean, it's certainly disheartening to know the, the Biden administration isn't doing what it needs to do. I, I, I do think it's one of the failures of the Biden administration. I, I understand the reasons why we're stuck because it is a complicated issue but it has also become an incredibly political issue. And I don't know, maybe there's some light at the end of the tunnel at some point, but I just don't see it now. I think back a lot to what somebody told me once, and they told me, hope is a discipline. And so even in my most hopeless moments where I'm thinking that um, my, that my family members are going to be deported when I'm thinking about my, my community is just, painted in a way that breaks my heart, right? Um, I think about that a lot. That whole visit discipline and that we need to keep fighting for whatever very future of the vision we have. Because mm -hmm. it may not be crystal clear what it is. The path the path forward may not be crystal clear, but we still need to um fight for it. And it gets back to your the quote that you love so much is speaking out and just never giving up. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a, a really insightful conversation, and uh, perhaps we uh, can do it again sometime. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.